Welcome to Conversations from the Pale Blue Dot. Today I interview philosopher Steve Porter. If penal substitution turns out to be essential for salvation, then wow, God turns out to be very fickle indeed. There's vast stretches of church history where no one believed in penal substitution. If you like the show and want it to continue, please do me a favor and write a kind review on iTunes or send the link to a friend. Dr. Steve Porter is an associate professor of philosophy and theology at Biola University. He has written many articles and books chapters, but is particularly well known as one of the most important defenders of the penal substitution theory of the atonement in Christian theology. Steve, welcome to the show. Thanks, Luke. I'm happy to be invited. Steve, I'd like to start by asking you to explain the importance of atonement theory in Christian doctrine. And then, after that, maybe you could briefly outline some of the major theories of atonement besides the one that you defend? Sure. Those two questions are connected, really. How important atonement is depends on what exactly one means by it, and different Christians uh, mean different things. One way to get at that is we might think of the atonement as having both a, a broad sense and a more narrow sense. In its broad sense, it's referring generally to, uh, sometimes people take the uh, supposed etymology of the word atonement, and so we're dealing with humans becoming one with God, some sort of reconciliation between God and humans that, of course, Christ's life and death and resurrection have something to do with. But on this broad sense of atonement, it's, it's more of a, a general kind of reconciliation process that becomes almost synonymous with the Christian view of salvation. On, on a more narrow sense of atonement, it's dealing with the idea that human persons have in some sense offended God, that there's a need to to make amends for those sins, that there's some sort of forgiveness process that is necessary um, as part of this broader reconciliation. And so on that more narrow sense, we're, we're dealing with atonement theories that are particularly looking at what is required for God to forgive humans of their sins and in what sort of role does Christ's life, death, and resurrection play in that. So the importance of the doctrine kind of depends on whether one accepts both the broad and the narrow sense, or presumably all Christians accept kind of that broad sense, and in that way it's, it's a very important doctrine. It just is the doctrine of salvation. On the more narrow sense, well, uh, for those who think there is some sort of forgiveness process and that Christ plays a role in that, then of course, for those Christians, that narrow sense of atonement is going to be very important as well. But there are some Christian groups that, that don't see that narrow sense as, as applicable. For instance, Eastern Orthodox uh, Christians uh, are probably the clearest example of, of a group that doesn't take atonement in, in the narrow sense as essential. Eastern Orthodoxy typically has what some, sometimes has been called an incarnational theory or a participatory theory of the atonement. It's not so much that Christ died on the cross in order for God to forgive our sins. They, they don't really have that as a major part of their, of their view. But it's more, oftentimes the idea is, is more that somehow through Christ becoming incarnate, taking on human nature and perfecting human nature, that, that it's through human participation with Christ's divinized human nature that, that, that we are rescued from sin. So it's a different kind of salvific model in, in some respects and doesn't include the, 
uh, typically doesn't include the idea of needing to make amends for sin and that somehow Christ made amends for sin. The Roman Catholic view is typically not a penal substitutionary view, though you can see some of that penal type language in, in various figures in uh, Roman Catholic thought, particularly some medieval uh, theologians and, and uh, St. Augustine uh, before that. But from my understanding, the, the standard Roman Catholic position is, is more of a, what's been called a satisfaction theory of atonement, which, mm-hmm. which sounds a lot like penal substitution, but it, but it is slightly different. It's not the idea that Christ was punished on the cross for our sins. It's more the idea that, that Christ's work, both his life and his death, was a meritorious act. And so he uh, merited favor, reward, merit from God the Father, and that he then gives that merit to the debt that human sinners owe God. This debt of honor is how St. Anselm would have thought of it. And so Christ's merit uh, is applied to our debt, and it's through that that God forgives human sinners, and so it's not so much that he was punished, it's more that he merited God's favor. So that that would probably be the traditional Roman Catholic uh, view, as I understand it. The Protestant tradition is very diverse when it comes to atonement in both the broad and narrow sense, but certainly the penal substitution view is largely a, a product of Protestant thought. You know, Luther and probably even more so Calvin are going to be seen as, as the early Protestant proponents of penal substitution. And so, uh, and yet there are many Protestants that don't identify with penal substitution at all. In fact, even within conservative evangelical Protestantism, there's been a lot of debate recently about the adequacy of penal substitution, both is it uh, biblically supported and as well as questions of its moral adequacy as well. So even within conservative Protestantism, there's been longstanding and, and even in, in recent years, uh, quite a bit of discussion about, about uh, whether or not penal substitution is, is the best picture that we have. Of, of Christ's atoning uh, work. And the penal substitution theory is also sometimes called ransom theory, or the ransom view, is that right? Well, probably. I mean, we get the ransom language from the English interpretation of, of Jesus saying that the Son of Man came to give his life as a ransom for many. It's interesting, the early, the early church uh, took that language not as a ransom, you know, a payment to God, for salvation, but took it as a, a payment to Satan. So you have folks like uh, Gregory of Nyssa, who who were early proponents of, of what would be called the ransom theory. And, and by ransom theory, these early church fathers didn't think at all of a payment to God the Father, but more of payment to Satan. The idea was that Satan had just rights over fallen human souls and that Jesus exchanged his life for these fallen human souls. And so um, that the ransom was Christ's death, but it was paid to Satan. And then Satan was, on some accounts, was, was kind of tricked. He didn't realize that on this view, you know, didn't realize that Jesus was God incarnate, and so he, he accepts the trade only to realize that he can't maintain Christ because he's divine, and so the resurrection is kind of the, the great escape from Satan's grasp. Now, Jesus, he's a tricky guy. He's a tricky guy, yeah. <laughs> you better watch out, Satan. He'll, uh, gotcha. he'll, he'll find, he'll find ah. a way to, to, to one-up you one way or another. Atonement theory is, is very interesting historically because it's 
probably of a lot of central Christian doctrines. It, it's, it's one of the most diverse over church history. I mean, there are quite distinct views of what it exactly was that Christ's work on the cross did to accomplish the forgiveness of sins. And in that sense, penal substitutions are rather, you know, rather late on the scene. So, Well, when we're talking about contemporary penal substitution theory of the atonement, a lot of people who don't study it might just think that it means something vaguely like God was just so angry because of human sin and disobedience that he just had to inflict his violent wrath on somebody. And instead of punishing guilty sinners, he took it out on the innocent, perfect lamb of Jesus instead, and that somehow absolved all the sinners. And uh, if if that's a little bit naive view of the penal substitutionary theory, what is the penal substitutionary theory that you would defend? Yeah. Well, I should say first, Luke, that unfortunately, while I do take the way you characterized it to be an erroneous kind of uh, characterization, and yet, unfortunately, a lot of Christians do, I think, present a theory in a way that makes it sound pretty gruesome and makes God sound pretty, well, angry and vindictive and uh, out of control. Yeah, he's uh, like the Hulk. He just gets in his mood sometimes and you can't stop that's him. That's right. Yeah, and he's got to get his pound of flesh one way or another. I think that's unfortunate. I think that actually shows how much work needs to be done, whatever one thinks of the truth or falsity of the theory. But, but for those Christians who are committed to it, I, I think a lot of work uh, needs to be done within the, the Christian camp to help people understand the view and, and portray it in a way that, that doesn't do an injustice to, well, to themselves ultimately. But, so yeah, I don't see it as that. I, I, I think maybe the clearest way to begin to reshape the presentation is to just insist, and I think the biblical witness insists on this, that God was ultimately motivated by love in Christ's coming to earth and in Christ's death, and, and that Jesus was, was a voluntary participant in this, and that it was out of a, a love and, and wisdom that, that God was requiring Christ's death on the cross. And so Paul says in the book of Romans that God demonstrates his love for us in this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And the, the idea is, is that God already loved uh, human sinners, he didn't need Jesus to die on the cross in order to love them. He loved them, and that's why he sent Christ to die on the cross. So, so it's, it's not that we have this angry God that, that needs someone to pay the price or he just can't get over his anger. We have a loving God who's wisely trying to reconcile with fallen human sinners. And then the question is, well, how does a loving, good, just God reconcile with human sinners? And that's where you know, we get into some more of the details of the theory as to, well, how exactly could it be that someone dying is going to be part of the wisdom and, and justice and goodness of, of a loving God? Well, the way I, that I encountered your work on penal substitutionary theory was in your chap chapter in the Christian Apologetics book, Contending with Christianity's Critics. And in that chapter, you defend a certain moral framework that must be plausible in order for penal substitutionary theory to succeed because the penal substitutionary theory assumes a particular moral framework. So the first leg of that moral framework is the claim that punishment is sometimes an appropriate human response to intentional human wrongdoing. And today there are many people who think that the whole idea of punishment should be abandoned and we should really just be trying to reform people and not worry about punishing people for what they've done wrong. How would you defend this first leg of the moral framework required for penal substitutionary theory? Right, yes. I, I do defend some sort of 
retributive theory of punishment. And I, right. and I do think that's, that's the best way to, to make moral sense of at least a penal substitution theory. So I think just on the human level that, that punishment is, in, is an appropriate response to right. uh, intentional wrongdoing. Well, in lots of definitions of, of punishment could be given, but here's one that I use and, and find uh, kind of intuitively helpful. So to think of punishment as this, it's the forcible withdrawal of certain rights and or privileges from a wrongdoer in response to the intentional abuse of those rights and privileges. So the idea is when someone intentionally harms another person, they no longer deserve to have the right and and privilege to do that again. They deserve to lose their right or privilege to have access to other people in a way that they can bring them harm. I mean, assuming a person's brought someone great harm, right, for, for no reason or just out of uh, pure spite or whatever it is. So the idea of punishment is that, uh, well, certainly we want to reform the person. Certainly we want to deter the person. You know, we want to prevent this from ever happening again. But how one might go about doing that, you know, that would be a whole other discussion of, you know, what, what's the best way to, to bring about the utilitarian end of punishment. But on retributive theory, we say, well, wh- whatever happens in terms of deterrence or reform or prevention of wrongdoing, when someone misuses their rights and or privileges, they do not deserve to have those rights and or privileges. And so I think there's there's just many cases where the, we can get our intuitions going that that, that makes a lot of sense. Uh, you know, I, I have two small children and my two-year-old has taken to biting her older brother. Of course, we don't want her to do this. So you took out her teeth, right? Yeah, yes. Yeah, of course. Yes, yeah. We put a, you don't get the privilege of chewing anymore. A muzzle. That's what we need, a muzzle. <laughs> That's right, yeah. Yeah, what do we extract from her? Well, we do. In a certain sense, we force, at times, when I see her going after her brother, I forcibly stop her from biting if I you know, have to pick her up or whatever it is and, and give her a timeout or whatever it is. Well, why? Well, because she's misused a certain privilege she has, play with her brother and, and interact with him. And so she's going to lose that for a time. And I tend to think that it, what's been called an expressivist theory of, of retributive punishment is a helpful notion that when we do exact loss from a wrongdoer, we're expressing the value of the victim, that, that the, the wrongdoer devalues. And my, my daughter, in a sense, you know, devalues my son when she when she bites him, she treats him like an object rather than a person, and so she's devaluing him, and so there's a certain uh, right value, and if, and if I don't do something about that, if I just kind of, you know, blow it off or just tell her to stop or, you know, even just tell her to say she's sorry, that in one sense it communicates to my son that, you know, he, he really doesn't deserve to be treated any better than that, that, that it's, it's okay she's doing that, and so part of it, I think, the appropriateness of, uh, of punishment is expresses the value of the victim, and I think it also expresses a certain seriousness about moral freedom, the, the moral freedom that human agents have, and we take what they deserve seriously. So retributive punishment, I, I don't think it's uh, necessarily easy to defend, but, but I do think there are some compelling intuitions that, at least in my mind and, and many others who are not involved in this particular discussion, but just are involved in theories of, uh, of punishment, find, uh, find the theory of retributive punishment uh, defensible. And the second leg of the moral framework behind penal substitutionary theory is that it is sometimes good for God to exact punishment in response to human wrongdoing. What do you say in defense of that part of the moral framework? 
I, I take what sometimes is called a moderate theory of retributive punishment, and, and I think that is going to matter when it comes to why it's good for God to exact punishment. So on moderate retri- retributivism, the idea is, is that, that wrongdoing justifies punishment, but it, it doesn't demand punishment. So moderate retributivism is different than strict retributivism. Strict, strict or strong retributivism says not only does wrongdoing, intentional wrongdoing, justify punishment, but it, it requires that punishment be exacted. So a moderate view, though, says no, uh, there's, other, there's other good ends, there's other goods uh, that need to be taken into account as to whether or not punishment should be exacted. So, so I take it in the case of God and human sinners, that human sinners have wronged God. Now, this is a whole other discussion in some ways, is exactly, you know, exactly how, how have we wronged God and, and what do we owe. But at least on one account, God has given human persons the opportunity to live life on earth. And for, for many people, that's a, that's a good life. That's a, at least a potentially good life. They have many opportunities to do good uh, to others, to take care of the environment. And on a, a Christian view, we also have the opportunity to develop a relationship with God and to uh, enjoy communion with Him and to uh, experience the benefits of, of living in, in, a, in a relationship with Him. And yet, even for someone like myself who, you know, who believes all this, I fail at these things repeatedly. I, I fail to, to live uh, up to the, the moral standards that I believe I should. I, I fail to, to take care of created order uh, in the way that I should. I fail to take advantage of, of the opportunities of relationship with God. And, and not just once or twice, but you know, time and time and time again. And I, I redouble my efforts and continue to fail. And, and so you, know, you get to the point where, where the idea that, that I, I, I no longer deserve the life I've been given. In fact, I deserve to uh, have my physical life and what we might call my spiritual life, my opportunity for a relationship with God. I don't deserve it. I don't deserve this, these, these good gifts that I've been given. I deserve to have them taken away. I no longer deserve a life both physically or spiritually. So what's God going to do about that? If I am in that situation of indebtedness to him that, that I, I don't deserve to have physical existence, I don't deserve to have this spiritual existence that I do have, how, how is God going to deal with that? Well, God could, of course, just forgive me. He could say, oh, I know, Steve, you've made kind of a mockery of you know, the opportunities you've had, but that's okay, I'm going to forgive you. Now, I, I think God could do that, but it may not be good of him to do it. In fact, I, I want to argue that there are certain goods that wouldn't be achieved, uh, particularly with repeated offenses and grievous offenses. If we never exact punishment, I'm thinking now at the human level, and we just forgive, we have the, the danger of trivializing the wrong done, even on the human level. And think of the woman who, whose husband has repeatedly been unfaithful to her and had numerous adulterous relationships. And, and here he comes back to her again and, and says, you know, honey, I, I love you. I know I've failed you and I've been unfaithful numerous times, but this time I, I really, I'm sorry. I'm, I'm not going to do it again, you know, and, and please, you know, take me back. Well, she very well could uh, forgive him, but she also could say, well, um, yeah, but, but we're not going to live together for a while. And, and in fact, I, I don't want you to come home. I want you to find your own place to live. I want you to, to, to be apart from the fa- family. I, I need to learn to trust you again. And if she does that, she's, she's exacting a certain 
loss from him. She's, she's punishing him. She's saying that, that you don't deserve to be part of this family, or at least have all the rights and privileges that you used to have. And, and so I don't, I don't want you in, in our home. And when she does that, when she demands that he experience that kind of uh, loss, well, then that treats herself uh, with a certain kind of value. It treats her relationship with her husband with a certain kind of moral seriousness. It, it treats uh, him as a moral agent and, the, and his wrong as a serious one. If she just said, yeah, come back in again and, and yeah, you know, come, come back into the bedroom here and we'll just kind of, I forgive you and off we go. Well, there's a certain danger of, of trivializing uh, the seriousness of the offense and the betrayal. So uh, it, it seems like it, it could be very good for a good and loving God to exact the punishment uh, that's due human sinners. If for, for no other reason, in order to communicate the seriousness of the failure, the seriousness with which God takes the reconciliation process, to express his, his own value, the, the value of, of the Godhead. So all of that seems to um, be made more poignant if God says, yes, I'm going to give you what you deserve. Now, I'm hearing in some of what you're saying, Steve, that maybe there's another assumption here. Well, do you think that this type of retributive theory requires that moral agents have libertarian free will? Let me think about that for a second. I believe in libertarian freedom, irrespective of what consequences it has for retributive theory of punishment. But I think actually one of the problems with some sort of determinism is I don't see how moral responsibility can be taken seriously if, if all of our actions are determined. So yeah, I do think, at least on my view, a retributive theory of punishment does uh, depend on a libertarian view of human freedom. And then another leg of the moral framework behind penal substitutionary theory is that the goodness of this punishment for wrongdoing can still be achieved if God takes the punishment upon himself by way of Jesus rather than exacting it on the offender, which would be us. Uh, how do you defend that claim? So I think this is, once again, where the moderate retributivism really helps, because once again, on moderate retributivism, the idea is, is that wrongdoing does justify the exaction of punishment, but that there is some wiggle room, so to speak, on exactly how that punishment is exacted. And there also could be cases in which there is a penal substitute. David Lewis, who's uh, uh, now deceased but a you know, famous philosopher, wrote an article in, I think it was Philosophical Papers, you know, a decade or so ago now, called Do We Believe in Penal Substitution? And as far as I can tell from reading the article, I, Lewis didn't have a penal substitutionary view of, of the atoning work of Christ in mind at all. He's, he's, he was completely talking about kind of mixed moral intuitions we have about penal substitutes. Uh, for right. instance, he gives, the, he gives the case of a parent paying a parking ticket or you know, uh, some sort of financial penalty uh, for their child. Well, you know, we may be bothered by that if, if we think the child, is, or it doesn't even have to be a child, it could just be a friend paying my, you know, my parking ticket for me or my speeding ticket for me. Well, we don't require that the wrongdoer pay the penalty themselves. If they can find someone else to pay the ticket, then you know, that's fine. And I don't think we'd even be bothered by someone else paying the ticket as long as what? Well, as long as the wrongdoer somehow feels the bite, right? Feels the consequence themselves. I think, I think the problem we might have with someone else paying some, someone's uh, ticket is that, well, did the person who actually got the ticket, do they actually experience 
the consequence, right? We want them to experience, you know, the consequence. Well, in, in some cases, it, it might actually be even be more of a powerful moment for the wrongdoer to have someone else pay. I mean, it might be more painful, in a sense, for the child to see, you know, their hardworking father or mother or grandmother or whoever it is pay this fine out of their own pocket. Now, of course, in, in other cases, it, it, it seems morally egregious, right? We don't think grandma can take the prison sentence for the convicted rapist or something like that. We think, no, uh, no way. Uh, well, uh, I would argue that part of the reason why in those cases, a transfer of punishment to another party seems morally problematic is, is because part of the goods that we're trying to accomplish when we, when we put the convicted rapist in prison is deterrence, is prevention. Uh, we, I think, rightly think that uh, if the rapist isn't on the streets, uh, at least they don't have access to innocent people on the streets, and, and so hopefully we, we have a prison system where their, their rape is reined in there too. Oftentimes that's not the case, but that would be the ideal. So we, we, we want to prevent, we want to deter, and so putting grandma behind bars uh, isn't, isn't going to do that. About the Lewis article, you know, Lewis was trying to figure out what our intuitions are about penal substitutionary theory, and he says that we sometimes do feel that it's all right for an innocent person to pay a fine owed by a guilty person, but he's not sure why. And then he says, maybe it's because we have no practical way to prevent it. Even if we required the criminal to pay the fine out of his own bank account, it would be impossible to prevent someone from, you know, putting a deposit in his account. Uh, and then he goes on to say that when it comes to something like, say, somebody being punished in, in place of a burglar who committed a crime, uh, he concludes that our intuitions are that this wouldn't be accepted and that the authorities would just laugh at this because it doesn't fit our moral intuitions. That's right. And I agree with both those intuitions. I guess I am offering a bit of a rationale that Lewis doesn't go into as to why our intuitions might go one way with one case and the other with, with the other case. And, okay. and so I, what I'm suggesting is is with the case of paying the money, it's not just that it's practically impossible to make sure the wrongdoer pays it, you know, him or herself. I, I think why we all have a problem with someone else paying the burglar's penalty is once again because there's potential good of deterrence or at least a good of prevention. Or think of the shoplifter who can no longer enter, you know, a certain store that they mm -hmm. shoplift from. Well, it wouldn't do any good for someone else to pay it because part of the reason why we give that penalty is because we don't want that person going into that store because uh, we don't want them and the store owners don't want them stealing from them again. So I take it there, there's other goods besides the retributive justification. There are other goods, utilitarian goods, expressivist goods, that are accomplished in some cases of transfer and aren't accomplished in other cases of transfer. Right. And if that's the case, then I think we have a rationale for why transferring the punishment to Christ in the case of the punishment due sinners could be a good transfer, a, a just transfer. And that is, if the goods of God exacting punishment of human sinners is that by God so doing, he treats human sinners as responsible moral agents, that he values right action and moral goodness, and he expresses the value of his own being, then all of that could be equally expressed, if not better expressed, by transferring that punishment to a voluntary substitute, in this case, Christ. Of course, the other great good if God transfers the punishment to the second person of the Trinity, is that human sinners don't have to pay the punishment, right? So if, if the punishment is physical death 
and spiritual death. Well, of course, if I pay that penalty, well, my physical and spiritual life is over and it's a great loss to me. And, and so God in his mercy transfers that punishment to Christ, takes that punishment upon himself, we might say, in the person of Christ. The expressive goods of punishment are still there because if we understand what's happening on the cross in this kind of way, then we see in Christ's death on the cross, we see that God did take our sin seriously. He right. did take punishment seriously. He does take our relationship seriously. Hmm. Now, do you find that there are people who have very similar views about the atonement to you, but they think that there should be other expressive goods that can't be accommodated by your theory of the atonement, and therefore this doesn't work for them? There are certainly other Christian philosophers and theologians that have interacted with the view of the atonement that I put forward, which I, I do need to say is a modified theory of penal substitution. This, this certainly uh, isn't the classical theory that would have been put forth by Calvin. I think it's consistent with John Calvin's view. I think it's consistent with other historical presentations, but it's departing or it's maybe specifying certain features of the view that haven't been specified in exactly this way. There are certainly others who have engaged my theory who disagree with it. Some of them might hold to some other type of penal substitutionary view, but most of them that I'm aware of actually would critique my view as maybe as one of the better treatments of penal substitution, but, but find fault with it and, and suggest some other theory of the atonement that wouldn't include a penal element at all. So, for instance, Mark Murphy, who's a philosopher, I think he's at Georgetown, I believe, either the articles come out or it's about to come out in Faith and Philosophy. I, I haven't looked at the recent issues to see if it's come out yet, but he has a paper where he argues for a theory of the atonement that I believe he calls vicarious satisfaction or something like that. It engages my view and, and dis ultimately disagrees with and offers an alternative in its place, but I, I don't think he would see his view as a, as a penal substitutionary view. So um, I'm not aware of anyone else who holds penal substitution who has interacted at least substantively with the view I'm proposing. Okay. Now, so far we've spoken about how penal substitutionary theory could be a coherent view and have a plausible moral framework. And then how do you get from that to saying that penal substitutionary theory is the true view of the doctrine? Yeah, good. Good question. I, I don't know that it's true. I think I have good reason to, to believe it to be true. And those reasons would be really the following two reasons. One, I do think uh, Scripture is an authoritative source of knowledge about these things, and so I take it that there are some biblical reasons that while Scripture doesn't clearly teach uh, penal substitution, but I do think a penal substitutionary theory makes the best sense of a lot of passages in Scripture. So I do think that Scripture points uh, to something like penal substitution. Though, of course, there's going to be other Christians who look at those same passages and think of no such thing. They would you know, disagree with my interpretation. The second reason would be more philosophical in nature. So I, I do think that given Christ's voluntary death on the cross, and once again, this is kind of an assumption, but it's an assumption that from within a Christian framework is widely assumed, and once again, typically based on, on biblical argument, though I imagine there's also an argument just from uh, the nature of Christ himself, but the idea that Christ voluntarily went to the cross, that he could have, 
you know, surely he could have called 10,000 angels. So surely Christ could have slipped away as he did other times. You know, he set his face to Jerusalem. He knew he was going to die. He knew he was going to be killed. Well, if that's the case, then I think we have a, here's a moral principle that, that no one should voluntarily allow themselves to be killed unless there is some great good that can only or best be accomplished by such a voluntary sacrifice. A voluntary sacrifice of life is either foolish or suicidal unless there's some great good. So if we have Christ voluntarily going to the cross, there must be some great good that could only or best be accomplished by such a sacrifice. And, and my argument is, is that there's lots of good reasons that Christians have put forward as to why Jesus goes to the cross. But it seems that most of these, these goods the cross uh, does accomplish could be accomplished in some other way, a less costly way. For instance, uh, Richard Swinburne, you know, former NOLF professor of the Christian religion at the University of Oxford, Swinburne argues that Christ's death is the in- inevitable result of a life lived perfectly, right? So, you know, a perfect, a perfect person's going to be killed because, at least in a hostile environment, that's going to be a threatening person and, and someone's going to feel threatened by this person, and and so somebody's going to kill a human person. So he says it's inevitable, and that if Jesus would have avoided it, he would kind of look like a coward, right? So why did Jesus die? Well, he needed to carry his mission out to its very end. Well, really, is that a a good reason to allow oneself to be killed, right? If we, if we found out that some you know great moral reformer who who we thought was you know assassinated while they were championing their cause, well. It turns out this moral reformer actually could have uh, avoided the, the bullet. They could have avoided uh, this assassin. But, you know, they, they went ahead and allowed themselves to be killed. Well, see, all of a sudden I think, well, that's foolish. Uh, they shouldn't have done that. If, if they could have championed their cause, I wouldn't have thought that they were a coward if they somehow had dodged all the bullets and ended up, you know, dying uh, in, in, from old age, uh, that's, that's great, good for them. So, here, so the argument basically is that the best explanation of Christ's voluntary death on the cross is, is that there was a great good in, in his voluntary death and that that great good was, and, and I think penal substitution presents what that great good could be. It's, it's that he was paying uh, the, the price of, of human sin, that, that the death on the cross was a physical death and it was a spiritual death. He was separated from the Father and he experienced the, the kind of spiritual death that we deserve as, as sinners, and he experienced the, the loss of his uh, physical life on earth. Now, recently there was, I think, a fairly big controversy in the evangelical church about the importance of penal substitution theory, theory of the atonement, and then the result was this book, Pierced for Our Transgressions, Rediscovering the Glory of Penal Substitution, or something like that. Mm-hmm. How important do you think penal substitution theory of the atonement is to evangelical Christianity specifically? Yeah, well, essential for me uh, in the sense that I think it's true. And so uh, I think it offers an important understanding of, of the cross, of salvation, of my own understanding of sin and God's desire to reconcile and all these things. On the other hand, I don't think penal substitution is essential 
for salvation, for instance. Actually, don't see any sort of biblical reason to think a person has to believe anything very particular about the cross at all. If you take Romans 10, 9, you know, Paul says if you confess with your mouth that, you know, that Jesus is your master and, and, and you, you believe he's alive and he's your Lord, you'll be saved, right? And, and, and none of that says anything about what happened on the cross or forgiveness of sins even, right? It's that Jesus is, is, my, is my Lord and that he's alive and my life is, is found in him. If penal substitution turns out to be essential for salvation, then wow, God turns out to be very fickle indeed. There's vast stretches of church history where no one believed in penal substitution. Well, let's consider some objections to penal substitutionary theory. One major one would be, even if God could still get the goods accomplished by punishing Jesus instead of sinners, how could it ever be just to punish an innocent person, especially with such extreme suffering, regardless of what you know whatever goods are accomplished how could it be okay to punish an innocent person yeah i think the obvious thing to say is punishing an innocent person would only stand any chance of of being just if the innocent person is voluntarily agreeing submitting to the punishments some have made the charge that penal substitution is is akin to you know divine child abuse or something like this where god the father punishes his son and and so you get the picture of the son kind of not wanting the punishment and mm-hmm. the father goes after him anyway well no that that's not the picture if we have an innocent person who's willingly taking on someone else's punishment well we're kind of back to the david lewis type intuitions well right. if in some cases there is the possibility of a penal substitute even if that person's innocent they're going to pay the penalty for another person then I don't see anything morally objectionable about it. One analogy that to me makes some sense is a sports analogy, where if you think of a soccer team, and let's say one of the players shows up late for practice, and so he's misused his privilege of being part of the team, so he deserves to kind of experience a loss. So the the coach says, well, Charlie, you're late for practice. You need to run five laps before you can you know, join the rest of us in practice. Well, I think the team captain who showed up on time, he's innocent, he's not late. I think the team captain, or, or someone else for that matter, but maybe the team captain's the, the one to do this. You know, the team captain steps forward and says, uh, Coach, uh, I don't want Charlie to miss any more practice. You know, we're going over important, you know, game stuff here. Uh, let me run his five laps for him. Let me pay the penalty for him. That still, you know, communicates that Charlie was not treating his team with respect. It still takes the the harm done seriously, and yet Charlie doesn't have to experience any more loss in terms of not being able to to practice with the team. So, you know, the the coach could agree to that. He could not agree to that, but it seems that that it could make some sense for the coach to say, yeah, okay, team captain, you run the five laps and uh, and Charlie gets to stay here. That doesn't seem morally egregious to me. In fact, it seems virtuous that the team captain would step up and take the loss for the team, uh, for his teammate. So for an innocent person to receive punishment, I think it can make a lot of sense in some scenarios. But by all means, this isn't to suggest that in all cases, an innocent person is just as good as the guilty. No, no, no. There, there's, I think, uh, the vast majority of you know, certainly criminal cases of, of punishment. No, the, 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 an innocent person isn't just as good as the guilty. And, and I think that's because there are other goods that we're seeking to achieve through punishment besides just the expressivist good. And, and so goods like deterrence and prevention and 
think um, oftentimes make it the case that it's, it's obligatory to punish the guilty. There's certainly lots of cases in which punishing an innocent person is morally egregious, but I think in some cases where the innocent person is, is a voluntary participant and, and there are certain goods that can only be achieved through a substitute, it can make moral sense to punish a, a substitute. Well, I'd like to go back just briefly to your analogy about grandma. And I must say that all of this, you know, seeking the truths about kind of a speculative metaphysics by testing our intuitions and testing the psychology of Steve Porter and Luke Malhauser is all just very far away from the way that I do epistemology. But let's run with it. Back to your grandma example, it seemed there, you know, if grandma offered herself willingly and voluntarily to pay the prison sentence for her murdering uh, son or grandson or something, mm-hmm. it seems like, you know, in that case, we would just say, no, what are you talking about? We can't do that. Yeah. Um, so that seems like a counterexample to the sports analogy that you gave, where it seems like, well, maybe that would be okay to have somebody willingly uh, take the punishment of running laps. No, I don't think it is, precisely because in the case of Grandma uh, going to prison on behalf of her murderous grandson or whoever it is, one of the reasons why we want to send the murderous grandson to prison is because we don't want him to murder people. And so putting him in prison at least gets him off the streets, and there's a prevention effect, if nothing else. And then one more objection is a fairly imprecise one, but it would say something like, well, look, this sacrifice of Jesus is in reality just a human sacrifice, which was very common practice in many ancient religions. But today we find this morally repugnant. So uh, how would this human sacrifice at the center of Christian theology not be morally repugnant? Yeah, it's an interesting question. You know, what are these ancient religions that required human sacrifice? Well, I've heard of a few. None of them are around anymore, or at least if they are around, they're very uninfluential and largely marginalized. So one difference, of course this doesn't get to the heart of your question, Luke, but but one difference about this human sacrifice in the Christian faith is that somehow this human sacrifice has been at the center of a religious system, namely Christianity, that has continued to inspire people, continued to bring about life transformation in in people. What's different about Christianity? Well, here's the initial jab at it. Christianity's still around. (laughs) And and so then the question is, why? why? Why is this religion that has as its center human sacrifice People still find compelling, even people who, you know, find the death of Jesus very mystifying and and, uh, they don't know quite what to think of it, still somehow find there's power and there's transformation and there's value and meaning to be found in this Christian message, in this person of Christ. So I would argue that the difference between the Christian human sacrificial system is that all the other uh, religions that had human sacrifice were were delusional. This human sacrifice wasn't required. There was no need for it. It was barbaric. It was unjust, certainly for the person who was sacrificed. But that Christianity isn't of that type. In one way it's not of that type is that it's not just anyone who's being sacrificed. It's, it's God himself. It's, it's a voluntary sacrifice. Well, Steve, I appreciate the precision and care with which you develop atonement theory. I mean, it's not going to do anything for me because I don't share any of your assumptions, but 
Um, yep. I appreciate that this is a lot more coherent view than a lot of the theories of the atonement that I've read before. I wonder, totally apart from penal substitutionary theory, would you have any last thoughts that you'd like to share with the atheist listeners of this show? If I was coming at this from an atheist perspective, I wouldn't start with penal substitution. In one sense, it's an intramural debate, right? Penal substitution. And what, yeah. what exactly did the cross accomplish? And so I am happy to agree that this is a difficult doctrine. If I didn't think that the scriptures were inspired, I wouldn't go to such lengths to try to develop a coherent understanding of penal substitution. So it's, it, all this to say, it's only because of my background beliefs, right, that I'm dealing with this problem in the way I'm dealing with. I don't think someone's going to find penal substitution plausible at all unless they share some of these, these prior background beliefs that there is a God of the Christian type, that, that Jesus was God incarnate, that he did die and rise again. And I, I say all that not to plead for you know, <laughs> mercy uh, when it comes to penal substitution, but to just say, don't discount the Christian faith because of you know, what may seem to you or to others as the, the, the moral kind of inadequacy of penal substitution. There are plenty of Christians who would agree with you on that, who have no traction to penal substitution at all. But I wouldn't want anyone to dismiss the Christian faith on the basis of a theory that, that's really a rather recent theory and one that a lot of Protestant, even Protestant evangelicals today, find a lot of fault with. Well, Steve, it's been a pleasure speaking with you. Thanks for coming on the show. You bet. Thanks for having me and doing good work. In the next episode, I'll be interviewing Tom Clark about naturalism as a positive worldview. So stay tuned for more Conversations from the Pale Blue Dot.